This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back to our Year in Review news panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We have several other topics to get to, and we'll begin with the war in Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The war rages on. Thousands of lives have been lost. Millions of people have been displaced, and billions of dollars of support has been given to Ukraine. I've been giving you guys first word on this, but I want to go first this time around. I bristled a little bit when people were using the word quagmire about four days into the war. That was way too early to my mind. But now I think we've entered the point where we're looking at a long, long war and long war ahead, and Russia potentially has stumbled themselves into a quagmire here, even through Ukrainian counteroffensive. It does not appear that the Ukrainians are interested in suing for peace, and the Russians don't seem particularly interested in that either. And now we're talking about dogfights, street by street, in communities in the eastern part of Ukraine. This is going to be a long haul. And uh, even though I bristled at the idea of a quagmire, I'm becoming a little more comfortable with that terminology. Joita, what's your takeaway from the war in Ukraine? and followed it very closely on a hyper-local level. Um, I think a number of observers and analysts felt that this war would be over fairly soon. You were looking at Ukraine uh, up against this superpower, which is Russia. And I think what's really stood out for me in terms of this story is the resilience of the Ukraine of Ukraine and its people. Um, they've put up stiff resistance. And now many analysts are saying not only are they pushing back, but they will likely regain some of what has been lost. Some people who are especially hopeful and optimistic are saying that um, they might even regain what was lost in 2014. So I don't know if that's the, really the case, but I think the storyline that is most compelling to me, and there's very little that is compelling about a war, uh, to be clear, um, is the resilience uh, of, of the people of Ukraine. Of course, it's not been without tremendous human suffering. We know we've accepted many refugees here in Canada alone, and it's been interesting and, and very powerful to the, the uh, Ukrainian community in Canada organize to bring refugees to this country. So it's been very interesting to see the treatment of those refugees, say, versus treatment of refugees from other parts of the world. But that's a separate conversation. But I think the other part of Ukraine, I don't want to, uh, of the conflict in Ukraine, I am uh, loath to preempt the conversation. I know we'll, we'll probably talk about economic issues, but I think where we've all felt the impact, each and every one of us, is on the impact to the economy and uh, how that's, you know, how that's brought about changes to fuel prices and possibly for the price of food as well. Yeah, the economy is next. But before we get there, Michelle, your takeaway from the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I I completely agree with your assessment of the situation, Dave. I think uh, we're going to be here for a good while to come, uh, very unfortunately, because this has been uh, a real catastrophe for for millions of people, like you said. It has been amazing to watch the resilience of the Ukrainian people. It's been amazing to watch uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, really take center stage on, on the world order for a bit there. And also, speaking of the world order, that that's another thread that I find really interesting, is you have a, a really unusual degree of unanimity among most nations, and where the interest lies in seeing which countries have not 
spoken up to condemn Russia. It sort of uh, gives a bit of a snapshot of where some of the geopolitics at play right now, um, how those lines are falling and, and where those factions are developing. So I think there's a lot to to watch for with interest in the in the year ahead. But I worry that because we're in a bit of a quagmire situation that people risk losing sight of the sheer degree of human suffering that's going on. And that's uh, unfortunately does not show signs of ebbing anytime soon. Mm. As Joita was right to identify, the war in Ukraine has sent some significant ripples through the economy. Now, some of these are not related to the war in Ukraine, but let me run through a list of data points for you. I know, I know it can be a lot when I start firing off data, but Dave and data points. <laughs> eh, when we're talking about the economy, you got to you got to do it with some numbers. So, we know when it comes to the cost of food and fuel, that's been a huge part of the annualized inflation spikes that we saw to be around 9% in Canada. It reached double digits in parts of Europe. Central banks have been raising interest rates, which has eased inflation, but still puts a lot of pressure on cost of living, especially housing when mortgage rates have essentially tripled in a year. There has been a small dip in the stock market, not quite as catastrophic as some folks have talked about it. 6% in the Toronto Stock Exchange, 8% on the Dow Industrial. So not exactly catastrophe for the blue chips. However, Tech stocks have taken a beating. The tech-heavy Nasdaq was down almost 30% this year. For fear of bombarding you with too much data, allow me a few more indicators. Job numbers and economic growth do remain strong in Canada and the U.S. And one last thread is the collapse of cryptocurrency prices and the bankruptcy of the cryptocurrency exchange, FTX. I know, Michelle, I just hit you with a whirlwind of data. (laughs) But what's your big observation when it comes to the economy? Uh, um, this is, as as we all know, not my my deepest area of analysis here. And yet, I keep dragging I, you into these conversations. I know, no, you, you you educate me. This is good. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I think we're into a situation. Like, I, I, it's interesting because we we've talked about all these data points. Uh, we've traced them back. I think quite rightly in many cases to having a lot of ties to the war in Ukraine. I suspect these kinds of economic issues surfacing now are the ones on which elections will be won and lost even a couple of years from now when these numbers are out of date. Uh, I think we're seeing a foundation laid for for some difficult economic times, and I think those are going to shape a lot of conversations to come. Inflation uh, is one that I don't think is going away anytime soon. Um, There's it's almost hard to know where to where exactly where to dive in with these numbers, but I think they all tell a similar story. There's a lot of soundness in place, but the vulnerability that it does exist, I think, is exactly the kind that's going to worry people and mobilize people. I'm I'm going to use a cliche here in what I'm about to describe, but it feels like in the interest of trying to deal with a spike in inflation, the Bank of Canada and other central banks are cutting off their nose to spite their face. They're going to create a man-made recession when there wasn't necessarily a recession coming. And they've put a lot of pressure on people. I'll reiterate that mortgage factor, that mortgages have essentially tripled this year. Mortgage rates have essentially tripled in Canada. So we can talk about how the price of your lettuce went up a little bit or maybe how you had to buy some generic brands to get to the grocery store. But when we're talking about raising the annualized interest payments on somebody's home from a couple thousand dollars to like $8,000, $10,000, $12,000, that's going to have a massive, massive impact on people's lives. Juita, your thought on the economy. 
I think it's interesting if you're not an economist for the average person, uh, it might be something of a revelation or something to pay attention to, just how interconnected we are. Uh, here's this war happening in far off Ukraine, and it's having these massive impacts here in Canada. I think unless you're an economist or someone who is a business reporter and this is your bread and butter, um, you may not really be focused on the interrelatedness and the interconnectedness of our global economic system. And I think that's a really interesting thing to look at. But you're right, I think a recession is coming. I'm unsure what other measures the Bank of Canada could take other than to uh, raise the, the 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 key interest rate. Uh, it is a way to try and bring down inflation. And we saw the inflation going down gradually, slightly over the last few months. Uh, but you're right. I think the impact on, on interest rates for Oh no, we didn't. Be, uh, I wouldn't go so far to say as severe as what we saw in the in the late in the late eighties, for example, with you know people just walking away because their mortgages became so unaffordable. But I I honestly am at a bit of a loss as to what they could have done other than uh, you know look at the at raising the interest rate. Um, with that said, I think the other piece around this is just where ordinary people are really feeling the pinch is in the price of groceries going through the roof. Uh, there's been some studies and analysis done that says that going into 2023, sad to say it, but that's pretty much going to stay the same. People's grocery bills have ballooned out of control. And we saw the NDP motion on reflation. Um, and I know, having spoken to a number of economists at that time about the motion on reflation, that there was some pushback around this idea that it was all corporate greed and not other economic factors. So really, from the point of view of an average person, your grocery bill has just gotten that much more expensive um, and it doesn't look like it's going to go down anytime soon. So really, I don't have too many solutions to offer because I'm not an economist, but it's clear to me that this, this trend with heightened inflation and a possible recession is what we're looking at going into 2023. The one other threat that I'll pull on... You, Joey, you got to be quick here. you got to be quick. The one other threat I'll pull on is that there have been a number of, uh, of companies that have unionized, like the Starbucks and the Amazon. So perhaps in 2023, we'll see more people unionizing as well as a way to push back against the prevailing economic regime. Mm, I, I do like that observation. That's a good one. With the rail union disputes in the U.S. and some of the disputes here in Ontario, that one's to keep a close eye on in 2023 for sure. Okay, guys, Absolutely. here's a super fun one. Super fun one. How about social media and content moderation? We never talk about that on this panel. Uh, it remained prominent throughout the year. I'll take you all the way back to the heat that Joe Rogan was taking in the early part of the winter around vaccine misinformation. There were key questions about what role Spotify had to play in moderation on its platform, being the exclusive platform for the Joe Rogan experience. We had Elon Musk eventually buying Twitter, and that brought major questions about what voices may be enabled or brought back onto the platform. Of course, Canada has been trying to legislate its own content curation guidelines. Let's call that process uh, thorny. I think thorny might be the right word there. There's yeah. been some other stuff too, though, like Alex Jones uh, of InfoWars fame got absolutely slapped down in a Texas court and has now declared bankruptcy for the terrorizing he did of the parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. So it's like, it, it, it's been one of these years where it remains front and center and it is interesting. Joita, any lessons learned from another wacky year in content moderation? I think there are two things for me. The first one is that... Um, if you're a social media company, whether it's Spotify or Twitter, if you're a social media company of a significantly large size, you will inevitably realize that opening things up and allowing for a free-for-all is not the panacea you thought it would be because eventually uh, your advertisers, and you are reliant on your advertisers, your advertisers will come back and push back against you because of the chaos and disorder that is brought about when um, 
when social media isn't adequately regulated. So loath as I am to say it, uh, market forces and the power of advertisers who don't like instability, who don't like controversy, that might be a way for uh, social media companies to have to learn to moderate themselves. With that said, there I do also see a role for government, especially in regulating hate speech and uh, discriminatory content online. So I will be watching uh, the discussions in Canada to try and create some um, some you know guidelines to monitor social media very closely in the year to come. Michelle, I'm inclined to agree with Joita. My observation and my lesson learned is that money continues to talk in the world of content moderation. But are there any lessons uh, from this wacky year that you've taken away? Yeah, I, I would largely agree with that. And I think uh, in that spirit, it will be very interesting to see how things proceed because they're taking such huge losses right now. Um, I think uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine exactly how it's going to go. I, I'm, I'm long past predicting what Elon Musk is going to say or do at any point on any issue. Um, <laughs> but that kind of a, of instability, I think you, you're right to, to point out all the things you have. I don't have a whole lot to add to that, honestly, but uh, uh, I, I do think we might also be staring down the end of some of these platforms. I, I, I will be interested to see if, if Twitter is still a relevant thing. I think it'll still exist this time next year, but I do wonder uh, to what degree its status is going to change. Mm. And obviously, if one gives way, something else will rise to take its place, whether it's Mastodon or something we've never even heard of. I don't know. We shall see. <laughs> I think the Mastodon revolution has not exactly kicked off in the way that some folks uh, thought it might. Let's uh, jump over to a really serious story. Again, we've got so much to get to that it was hard to put these in order, but abortion rights in the United States. A major development took place south of the border when their Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade with their Dobbs decision. It essentially kicked abortion and reproductive rights down to the state level. Michelle, what's your thought on how that decision played out over the rest of the year? Yeah, to me, what was very interesting to watch was the the midterms and what happened there. And I think there's no question that that the the overturning of Roe versus Wade had a lot to do with the lack of red wave uh, for for years. People were predicting an absolute bloodbath in the November 22 midterms. Uh, they were expecting Republicans to easily seize control of the House and the Senate. That was not to be. They do have control of the House, but not by a huge amount. The Democrats actually have improved control over the Senate. Um, a lot of Trump-backed candidates are people who uh, were seen to have a pretty easy path, find themselves with a lot more difficulty in the face of people really responding to this abortion decision, pushing back on that, not wanting to see those rights or other minority rights that began to get some scrutiny in the wake of that decision. They didn't want to, they didn't want to see those things attacked. And a number of the candidates who would have been most pleased by the Supreme Court decision earlier in, this, in the year didn't really fare that well in the electoral field. So I found that really, really interesting to watch. I'm very interested to see all the court battles that are going on as states try every which way they can to to get around that Roe versus Wade decision. You have all kinds of court decisions upholding or overturning bans before they even take effect. There's a lot of pushback on a number of fronts, and I'm finding it very interesting to watch. I also was struck by the way this played out in the midterms to the point that perhaps our industry got it wrong a little bit. A deeply unpopular president, really high gas prices, a again, I'll call it a thorny economy. It was seeming like it was going to be a very difficult midterm, but by by making this decision, the Supreme Court touched a third rail that a lot of independents and a lot of moderates, even moderate Republicans, didn't want touched. And a lot of people showed up and the exit polls showed it. 
abortion and reproductive rights were a huge driver to the polls for a lot of people as their number one issue when a lot of pundits thought it was the economy. So for once, it wasn't the economy, stupid. Uh, Joita, Joita, what's your reflection on the way this decision impacted and played out the rest of the year? Yeah, I think the midterms really did become something of a referendum on abortion rights. And I, I will echo what Michelle said, where uh, traditionally the party of the president, so in this case, the Democrats tend to do badly in the midterm elections, the bloodbath, if you will. But in this instance, they did much better. And I think it's because there's been a real pushback against anti-abortion sentiment and a number of candidates who might have successfully argued against abortions did a lot, did not do as well as they might have anticipated. It's been very interesting to see the number of referenda in a number of, of states, uh, Michigan, California, Vermont, trying to uphold abortion rights. Um, so I admit when I first, re, uh, when you first sort of put the question to me, I was a bit taken aback. My initial thought was, oh my God, did that happen this year too? Uh, but it's going to be very interesting to see how this decision reverberates in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, even you mentioned some what would be perceived as fairly liberal states, Kansas. The people of Kansas showed up and said, "No, nah, we don't want this." We they wanted they like the people had a referendum and enshrined reproductive rights and abortion rights, saying, "No, the state legislature cannot touch this." So people, even in conservative places like Kansas, showed up and and made and made their voices heard on that issue. Okay, let's finish here, guys. The death of Queen Elizabeth II. I don't think the story requires much of an intro. Lots of ink and oxygen has been spilled on this topic. Joita, what's the big thread to pull from the death of the Queen? I mean, it wasn't surprising. Uh, she was 96 years old, so I think a lot of people saw that one coming. I think what I'd be interested to see is whether or and to what extent the Commonwealth um, is held together under Charles III. Uh, we know that there were many places, uh, Barbados being the most recent, where they've now declared republics, and I would wonder if uh, the Commonwealth will be sustained under Charles III or if more countries will seek to uh, throw off the yoke, as it were. Michelle, what do you think the thread to pull from the death of Queen Elizabeth II is? Uh, I think the the one to watch will be to what degree um, anti-monarchist sentiment starts to take root or or become more uh, comes further to the fore in Canada. We do know that there is a, a Republican faction here. Um, a lot of people were expecting them to be a lot more vocal with this particular succession uh, in light of the fact that the Queen was a relatively popular figure and Charles was less so. He is now King and those voices have not really come up. So I don't personally anticipate a lot of constitutional change in Canada just because, as, as we've talked about on this panel, no one seems to want to go there under any circumstances. But um, Joita's talk about Barbados is a real reminder that you just never know where this is going to go and where this kind of conversation will lead. Um, I'll be interested to see if the monarchy uh, changes its stripes in any way under under King Charles. I, I doubt it a little bit, but uh, it will be interesting to observe. I want to thank you both for everything that you do as part of this panel all year. This can be a very challenging balancing act. Taking on a um, I'll be interested to see if the monarchy uh, changes its stripes in any way under under King Charles. I, I doubt it a little bit, but uh, it will be interesting to observe. I want to thank you both for everything that you do as part of this panel all year. This can be a very challenging balancing act taking on a lot of different subjects, some of which out, are outside of our area of expertise. Your perspectives and thoughts on all these stories are always so appreciated, not just by me, but by listeners and colleagues and so many folks around the show. So Michelle, even though we will be talking off the air, I do want to wish you on the air a wonderful holiday season. 
Well, thank you very much. It's always a real pleasure to be here. The panel is great and a very happy holiday to you and the whole audience. Enjoyed a similar deal. We'll be talking off the air a couple times in the next few weeks during some of the testing while we're on hiatus, but I wanted to make sure I publicly said thank you and have a wonderful holiday season to you and the family. Yeah, everybody listening. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Juita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.